Welcome to 42 Answers from Founders for Founders, a podcast series brought to you by Project A Ventures, the operational VC. My name is Rainer, Rainer Berak, operating partner at Project A, and our guest today is Sophie Chang. Welcome. Hello, hello. In this podcast, we talk to great founders and we ask them the same set of questions about tech, growth, people, data, and ESG. Sophie, who are you and what do you do? And more specifically, even why do you do it? I'm Sophie. I'm the founder of Kuna Medical. We are a digital health company based in Berlin, and uh, we help patients find the right doctor worldwide. Uh, on one on the one side, and on the other side, we help doctors and hospitals um, deliver an amazing patient journey. Okay, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, Kuna Medical? Who's your target group? Uh, who are your main? It's probably it's a you could say it's a marketplace model, right? So you have these two sides that you have to manage. Yeah, basically, we on, on the one hand, we do have a marketplace model. We also, in the meantime, launched a B2B SaaS model. Um, so on the marketplace, we help patients find the right doctor just the same, just the way you would expect it on the marketplace, just with, you know, transparent information, um, the, 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 the possibility to, to book a doctor's appointment, to do a telemedicine consultation. So all of that, a one-stop shop for patients to find the right doctor. And as I mentioned, on the other side, we have developed a technology that helps doctors and hospitals actually arrive in the 21st century and deliver a patient journey that is digital, that is transparent, that is effortless, um, that is nothing short of amazing. So um, oftentimes, you know, you find patients using our technology without even knowing they're using our technology because we are working as a white label solution as well. People. If you would start a company today, what would be your first five hires? My first five hires would be five Swiss army knives with a little bit of a spike. I think at the beginning, you don't really need those highly specialized people who can only do one thing. You just need an army of people who can do many, many things and who are hungry and are very efficient and are very committed and motivated. So yeah, Swiss, Swiss army knives, but of course, you know, with some sort of specialization, I would say. And were these your first five hires? <laughs> uh, yes and no. So uh, I, of course, uh, of course, have thought about it. Um, my first five hires were in tech product um, admin, which is finance, HR, and all of that um, kind of customer service centric part and marketing. But also what uh, stood out was that um, we basically worked together as a team. And of course, everyone had kind of their field of work, but everyone was doing everything. Okay. And if you look at it today, what are the hardest hires to find today? I think the hardest hires to find are executive level hires. Um, I mean, everything is, high, is hard to hire um, nowadays. Um, but for example, um, in our case at Cuno Medical, it took us more than 18 months to find a COO. Um, basically, you know, somebody who has done it before, has seen it, who is a cultural fit, um, who has the seniority to come in and all of that, who's willing to kind of leave their job. Um, for me, that was the most challenging hire. Um, how do you measure employee satisfaction? Well, in the end, I think employee satisfaction will um, show itself in attrition. The happier um, and um, the more content your employees are, the longer they will stay at your company, especially as a startup, 
where your value proposition is not money. So if we were an investment bank, I might say something differently because then people might stay because of the money too. For sure, people are not doing it solely um, exclusively for the money at, at QNO Medical. And therefore, you know, looking at how long people are staying. So for example, in our case, um, four of the five first hires at QNO are still with the company. Okay, but you don't use a tool or so for... Uh, not at this point. Okay. Um, how do you measure employee performance? Well, um, that's a very good question. And it depends, I guess, on the employee and on the team. But really, you know, there are definitely employees on teams that are much more target-driven and KPI-driven, like in sales and marketing, where you can very easily define performance and deliverables. But then they're kind of the softer teams, um, like uh, product perhaps. Although here, um, you know, you can still make it very transparent and very uh, measurable where you can um, kind of follow up on quality, on deliverables, things like these. Um, but really, I think it's a it's a it's a it's an answer that you have to yeah answer for each individual team um, very specifically. Okay, number six. How should an organization be structured? Um, I think an organization should be should look hierarchical, should feel flat. Um, I'm a big proponent of hierarchies. I don't believe in organizations that have no hierarchies or very flat hierarchies. I feel like this is something a lot of people always think it's a, it's a good thing. I think it's good to know who are the key decision makers, who are the responsible people, who reports into whom, how do you escalate things. But at the same time, it shouldn't be in the way to allow the people who work in that organization to have maximum freedom to develop themselves and also the way of communication and working together shouldn't be hindered by a hierarchical structure. So that's what I mean by that is it should, it should feel very flat, but at the same time, there should be very clear hierarchies. Okay. Thanks. What's your approach to culture? Um, culture is very important and culture has to be lived at any given point of time. And it has to be lived from the top. You cannot expect kind of the teams and all your people living the culture that you want to see if you are not willing to impersonate that culture that you have set for yourself. One of the first things I did when starting QNO Medical was sitting down and writing down our company values because that set me up for knowing who I wanted to hire um, in which form. Did, did you ever adapt them over time or is it a set... I have not adapted them in the last six years. I'm open to, so I've never said they are set in stone. Um, but we um, and we might, you know, have to. So one of the one of the values is uh, be smart, um, act as if this was your own, uh, make decisions as as if this was your own company. So basically, be entrepreneurial. I feel like you know, be smart and being entrepreneurial might be misunderstood sometimes. So that, for example, might be a you know, be might be a value we might have to adjust. Okay. Um, remote first or office first? Office first. I know, I know. Um, I'm, you know, it's not a popular opinion at the moment. Before the pandemic, I, we were an office only company. We did not have any home office policy because I'm also a big fan of not making any exceptions and having the same rule for everyone. And I do think that especially in an early stage, there is a lot of value of building personal connection, having context, 
um, you know, meeting each other, things like these. And I still value these things. Um, I think the pandemic has shown that if you are forced to, you can also do it differently. And of course, you know, we went, we are still in home office two years after uh, it, uh, the outbreak. Uh, but I really miss being in the office on a regular basis. Of course, we will go back and have a hybrid model, but we will never be a remote first company. Yeah. It's interesting because I think the general perception is that this is not the popular way to see it at the moment. But uh, many founders, especially successful founders, seem to share uh, that opinion. Tech. Is Kuno Medical a tech company? <laughs> yes. Absolutely, yes. I would rather say we are a product-centric company, but for sure tech. Yeah, that is actually the next question. Uh, who's in the lead, product <laughs> or development? Yes, also this, I think, is a very philosophical uh, question that you can you know, discuss for a whole evening, and many people might have very strong opinions. Um, I think product is in the lead, and tech is an, an, an enabler. Mm-hmm. Um, who decides what to develop next? Uh, the customer and then me, together with the team. And, and how do you figure what the customer wants? Uh, different ways, uh, listening to the customer. And by that, I don't mean user interviews, because I think user interviews, you know, a lot of people are saying, go ask the customer. But as you know, you know asking a customer is, is only as, as helpful as the customer can, can speak about kind of their needs, but it's really about going deep and understanding the market, uh, understanding the customer, um, be, being very close to, 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 to their day-to-day and really looking at the data, um, running experiments, like all of that in order to truly nail down um, what the customer needs. And then, of course, you know, there are things that we look at like net promoter score and things like that where you just go like, okay, in the end, how, how much... Did the customer love what we offered um, to him or her? Um, but it's basically, you know, a multifactorial pro- process at this point. And and now all this has happened, so we we know the perspective. Um, how does the decision process work now? Um, well, first we do have strategic goals as well as a company. Um, as a startup, of course, it's growth. <laughs> Somebody said to me once, uh, a startup who doesn't grow is worth nothing. So our strategic goals are to grow um, by expansion into the market and all of that. And then from that, you derive the biggest levers, like what is going to help us grow here um, in a sustainable way. And then you translate that, you prioritize that and you translate that into a roadmap and then you go and execute on it. Okay. Um, A term that is around a lot lately is product-led growth. What's your take on that? Um, I think it's right. Um, I think by building an awesome product um, using awesome technology, you are actually building an asset um, for your company. You're building something that stays. You're building something that is sustainable. I mean, what's the alternative? The alternative is sales-led growth, maybe. And But also for that, I think you need an amazing product in order to be able to sell. If you don't, then, you know, you might burn yourself out. And then if it doesn't work anymore, you have no asset, nothing is left. Um, and therefore, I think product-led growth um, has, to be, has to be the way to go. 14, which role does design play in your company? A big one. So design for me is not just the colors on our website or, you know, the logo. 
design is user experience end to end. Um, and therefore for us also at QNO, for example, design is an individual team. So we have tech, we have product, we have design, and it's a triangle. So none of those teams report into each other, but they work very closely together because I want this creative tension to happen um, and also want to make sure that each of those teams know kind of of their importance in working together. Okay. Would you outsource software development? Um, generally, I would. I think we haven't done so to a large extent. I mean, when I started, we kind of quote unquote outsourced with project A, but I view it as almost like, you know, being part of my team really. Um, but at this point, all our developers are sitting in house. We sometimes outsource very specific projects. So for example, so we use Salesforce um, kind of as a CRM system in our backbone. Sometimes if we want to build features there, we might outsource a specific product so that we do. But generally, I do think that there is value in also building expertise in-house, especially as a product-led tech-enabled um, company. Not, you don't outsource the, the, the core of what, I mean, what your product actually is. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Growth. Thinking of a complete funnel from brand to marketing, to sales, to customer success. Do you have all these functions at CUNO Medical? We have all of them except for brand. Um, we don't have a dedicated person or place that does brand. I think it's, you know, we are not at the stage quite yet to kind of have a person or kind of a place where it does, uh, where you require this. Brand is, for me, everything that you do and then everything that, like, every touch point that you create. So, yeah, marketing, sales, customer success, we all have all of this. We don't have brand. Um, and who of them is in the lead or how are they structured? How do they work together? Um, they work together um, at basically at eye level. So, you know, when you look at the funnel, we have the marketing team. Marketing team is divided into paid, unpaid, but and they are responsible to basically acquire traffic, acquire our, our customers. And at one point, there's an, an handover into the sales team. Um, and uh, here, of course, you know, there's always the tension on what does marketing deliver? What does sales make out of it? Um, I think it's to a certain extent a healthy tension, but that's kind of, you know, we work along the funnel. Customer success comes after sales, basically. Um, so I'd say it's a very typical, you know, structure as you see anywhere else. But any of them like being seen as a... Uh... I don't know, look at a little bit more le leading the overall process? Um, I don't think so. So I think, you know, we know that marketing is very important because they drive growth and expansion. Um, but at the same time, the sales team is, is, is very much responsible for conversion. And therefore, we, I'd, I'd like to say we, you know, we value or we put as much weight on, on both of those teams. Okay. And how do you make sure that they don't work in silos? And uh, I mean, classic is that they blame each other if at the end the conversion doesn't happen and then sales says the leads weren't great and marketing says sales is not good at converting them. And how do you avoid that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, communication, 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 communication. So make sure that those teams speak to each other and align with each other what the expectations are, um, what the assumptions are, 
um, you know, how many leads do we think we will get? What's the conversion rate we will expect? Things like these. Um, be very clear what the expectations are and who's supposed to deliver what, because that allows us to go back and if something goes wrong, to really pinpoint what went wrong in a specific process. So communication numbers, but also benchmarking, I feel like it's very important to say, you know, if things don't work well, we can go back and see what the historic numbers are, but also benchmarking towards outside uh, kind of with 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 other um, kind of uh, people from, from the industry, because basically what happens is marketing says, I cannot do more. Sales says, I need more. And then we're there. And I think kind of bringing in a third party opinion sometimes will help as well and say, well, you know, I know somebody who has done this uh, or, or that. And last but not least, I think the culture is very important. One of our values is no bullshit. And also here, I feel like, you know, yes, there's a tension, but to just being able to admit to say, hey, I didn't live up to the expectation I didn't deliver this month is also very important. Question 19 is, how important is brand for you? I think to some degree you answered it in the beginning of the growth chapter. Yeah, yes and no. So by not having a head of brand or not having a brand person doesn't necessarily mean that brand is not important to us. I think we just view it slightly differently. Um, you know, what I used to say is everything we do, like our, our product is trust. We are in the healthcare sector. We help people find the right doctor, we help them, you know, find the right place to undergo a life-saving surgery. So it's not just buying shoes on the internet. The product we're selling is much more emotional, much more expensive, much more complex that you might usually see. So what we need to do is build trust and instill trust in every single touch point that a customer, a patient has with us. And for me, this is brand. The brand is to build a trusted place, a trusted brand where patients can go and trust us with their healthcare. I think you answered a little bit the next one, uh, how you actually approach brand. Uh, can you say a few more words? So how do you make sure that along the whole customer journey that is really happening, How that, that all your teams fully understand that and focus on that? I mean, that's a, that's a challenge, of course, but you know, I think, so think of it of like your, your best friend who you trust 1000%, right? Like what does this person do? This person is respectful towards you. They don't lie to you. They are here when you need them. Um, they will always tell you the truth um, and all these things. And I think those are universal truths that also apply for the customer journey, in our case, the patient journey. So what do we do? We do exactly that. We try to, we, we, we are respectful. We deliver what we promise. We are proactive. We are friendly. We are helpful. Um, and all these things, we translate this through our product, through the way we communicate, through the way we choose our doctors to work with and all of these things. And I feel like that's why building trust and building a strong brand is so hard because it's not just the one or two big things that you do. It's the 1,000 little things that you do that translates into a strong brand, into a trusted brand. 21, which marketing channels do you use and why? Uh, we use uh, very traditional marketing channels, I'd like to say. So, you know, we use paid channels, we use unpaid channels. Our paid channels, as you can guess, are Google, social media and so on. Um, but also, you know, YouTube, for example. I mean, it's part of social media because, you know, what we do is content rich. We need to explain our product. So everything that allows us to deliver content um, works really nicely on the unpaid side. Of course, SEO uh, plays a large role. 
um, but also PR for us because again, our product is very emotional, tells stories, um, really goes to the core of of families and human existence. So, um, but PR, as you also probably know, it's like you know, it's not something that you can scale in a very directed way. So performance marketing, you know what your budget is, you know what you get. With PR, it's more of a, you know, it's more of a, a long game here. Some are saying performance marketing is dead or dying soon. Do you agree? Um, I think it's a war zone um, or, you know, it's like it's becoming in increasingly crowded and it's becoming increasingly challenging um, performance marketing, but I don't think it's gonna be dead or dying soon. Um, in our case, in healthcare, for example, 70% of all healthcare journeys start on Google, um, start on the internet, basically. So I think it's hard for me to imagine that something will replace that starting point very soon. And therefore, I don't think it's gonna be dead. It's just gonna be increasingly um, difficult and people are going to be forced to look for alternative channels as add-ons. You do have salespeople in your team, right? We do. Um, where do you find people who are sufficiently digital savvy and good in sales? Well, that's <laughs> that's uh, 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 kind of the, the, the master question. So let me maybe quickly explain. We have kind of two types of salespeople at QNO. We kind of have um, our patient managers. They do B2C sales. We don't like to talk about sales in the healthcare context because we're not trying to sell you something you don't need. We are trying to kind of assist you along the patient journey. And as part of that, it's a little bit of a salesy approach. Right? It's just to be very clear. But um, here... What we found, and I hope I'm not going to disclose um, a secret here so <laughs> where we find them, but really, you know, what is important or what is necessary to be uh, important, uh, be successful in sales is to be able to build a human connection. So we don't really find people who have done sales before. We find people who are good at building human connections and that, uh, and they can come from all over the place. We have people who worked in hospitality. We have actors. We have people who worked in healthcare before. So really, we are not really looking at, you know, what did you do before? But we look at the ability for you to be able to build a human connection on one hand. On the B2B sales side, it's slightly different here. We are looking for people who are coming from the industry, who know how to sell, sell into hospitals, things like these. Um, here, a good place to look for is the pharma industry um, because they are scaling down their um, sales channels. Data. How does data make Cuno Medical successful? Well, uh, next to the vision and the strategy, data is the basis of success, I think. And the way I think about scaling and building a company, again, you know, um, it's of course looking for those step changes. But in the end, I am convinced that it's the sum of the 0.1 percentage improvement points that you that you get. And this you will only be able to achieve if you have data to look at and if you have data to track um, your progress. Mm -hmm. And which functional areas are supported by data at Cuno Medical? Um, basically, all areas are supported by data. Um, I mean, you know, finance and HR are data-driven, but they are not included in our data warehouse. Um, but everyone else or every team Uh, every other team is is supported. Okay, so also product, not because the classic is marketing, right? 
yeah. but also and, and product is often where yeah where where founders decide if they want to run that data driven or not yeah that's to me is is very odd right because how are you gonna build a product if you don't have the data to measure and i'm by far i'm not saying we're perfect right like at cuno we also you know have much more to learn and grow and but it i don't see a, an alternative to be data driven here okay 27 does your data team answer specific questions or explore the data available to find opportunities uh both um so first our data team is about kind of maintaining the status quo what i mean by that is tracking and reporting, right? Like making sure we know what is going on, making sure we know if something goes wrong, that we see it and things like these. So I think that is very important um, to have a data team who does that. And in addition to that, they of course look at specific um, specific questions. Um, oftentimes it's within the marketing or sales department where we go very deep because this is where you also want to optimize. And this is where they for sure help um, solve the problem. In my experience though is, that it has always be done together with kind of uh, the teams, the commercial teams, because, um, you know, from one side, you can look at it from a silo or in the vacuum and look at the data. But on the other side, you also need to understand the reality behind it. How do you ensure people really do what the data recommend? And let me explain. We do not only a few times, but we actually quite often see that um, data teams build uh, infrastructure to provide answers, but then the, the responsible people just turn around, they do what they think is right. How can you avoid that? So first, I think, um, in my experience, uh, you need to make sure that the data quality is as high as possible. What I experience often is you build something, the data shows you something, but nobody believes the data. Because people just go like, this can't be right. Or what about this? Or did we look at that? Right. And when you, at this point, when you want to look at the data and want to derive improvement levers from it, but everyone is questioning the data, it's not going to move forward. And I, I feel like that's, that's kind of a big thing to solve from the very beginning where, you know, you realize that with data, shit in, shit out. So you need to make sure that data quality is as high as possible and people actually trust the data. And I think that's a very, very important point. And once people trust the data, I think... I think then you can create the buy-in, number one. And number two, data has to be part of everyone's day-to-day. -day. It doesn't help to just look at the data once a month, right? Like it, it needs to be something that needs to be kind of part of your doing. And that's something that you have to instill within the whole company. Which tools and infrastructure do you use in data? So um, I'm not the techie in the company. So I actually had to um, ask my data people what to answer to that question. So I can tell you now. So I can tell you that we use Stitch data for extraction and loading, DBT for transformation, uh, GitHub for revision management, Snowflake as database, and Tableau for visualization. Again, I didn't come up with this. This is what my team said I should answer. How is your data team structured? I mean, which <laughs> roles do you have there? So for now, we are very lean. Um, again, you know, we are not that big of a company. We're around 60 people right now. We have one director of BI who then works with the individual teams. Um, and where is that person on that team located within the organization? Who do they report to? So they report to the COO, um, basically my co-managing director. Um, yeah, so very, you know, very high up. I also think that BI 
um, or data should be an individual team. They should have the gravitas to be able to kind of um, be self-sufficient and pick their own projects rather than also report into kind of another team. Yeah, because sometimes, I mean, where it's marketing heavy, they often report within marketing. In some cases, it's within finance even, or or if they see themselves very tech-driven in within the tech organization. But... Yeah, yeah, I, I get the finance part a little bit if you kind of have kind of a company controlling strategy part. But I really think that, you know, one of the success factors in data is being able to cro work across teams and really, you know, look at the customer journey end-to-end -end and kind of pull the data together. And for that, I don't think it should be reporting into just one team. GDPR, is it a struggle or an opportunity? It's an obligation. It's an obligation to follow. I think it's important, especially in healthcare, to respect data and use the data with the utmost care and respect. But at the same time, GDPR should never be in the way of saving people's lives which sometimes it still is. And somebody said once, um, you know, GDPR or data privacy is not saving people's lives. We should openly ask the question, how many lives has it already cost by not being able to connect the data, by not being able to advance as fast as we can. Environmental, social and governance. Would you see in some way Cunomedical as an ESG company? Yes, we are. So underneath the S for social at ESG, there is one, one point or one value that's health and safety. And here we are. We are and so, so why did you decide to do that? Why did you decide to start an ESG company? Well, we didn't, we didn't decide to start a company because of ESG. We decided, or I decided to start a company because we want to do our parts to create a healthier world and help patients get healthy again. And as part of that, we, you know, happen to comply to those criteria. And so it's more backwards engineered than forward. Yeah. We, we hear that a lot that when people, it's not so much that they say, I want to do something good. And that's why I looked into, but it's more like a passion for a particular topic. And then you, then you absolutely. What does Cuna Medical do in order to help our environment? Um, we help people be more efficient in the healthcare journey. And with that, we save a lot of resources. We save a lot of time. We save, um, you know, uh, a lot of um, disease uh, complications and things like this. And this might not sound like this has a huge impact on the environment, but, you know, a hospital is run based on a lot of energy. Um, it's very expensive to do. And if you can just take, and, and, and the healthcare sector is one of the most important, uh, one of the most expensive sectors um, in, in, any, in any economy. Uh, so if you can just move 0.11% in what they do, it ha will have a big impact. Which role does the S in ESG, so social, um, play in the way you run your business? That's really the core of what you do, right? Yeah, that's the core of what we do. So big role. And if we look at governance, that is probably the one that is most often overlooked. Um, which governance criteria do you follow? Um, well, I have, you know, we, we're still a venture-backed um, company. So, you know, there are legal structures and all of these things that already define the governance structure 
um, by how we have to be set up as a German GmbH, for example. So, you know, those are definitely aspects that will define that. But also, uh, I'd like to think um, that we are a very value-driven company, as we discussed before. Um, and therefore, and here we are explicitly and implicitly following a lot of values. For example, diversity. I mean, look at me, right? Like I'm a um, female founder of ethnic minority who didn't study business. So, and that's just something I think, and not to say that, you know, I'm great or so, but I, I think um, diversity is, for example, something that is is very, very important to us. Also, when you look at our team, we are a fully international team, um, but also when it comes to compensation, especially executive compensation, it's written down, it's very transparent. Um, we can't, you know, we know exactly, we, we can't just kind of in increase our salaries the way we want and things like these. So I think there are a bunch of explicit and implicit um, criteria that we already follow. Um, as a founder who's actually, um, yeah, as you said, uh, VC-backed and uh, requires to, 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 to raise money, does a focus on ESG help getting funding or do investors in fact see it as a deflection from the classic, let's earn as much money as we can? That's a really good question. I think um, the VC world is very schizophrenic when it comes to that, uh, except for, I mean, of course, you know, there are a couple of impact funds and they're very outspoken and all of that, but there aren't that many out there quite yet. And if you kind of um, exclude them for, for, for from, from, from the discussion now, I feel like everyone is saying we want to, you know, we want to be more sustainable. We want to be more diverse, yada, 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 yada. In the end, I don't think, Unfortunately, I don't think it is a key decision criteria quite yet in the VC world. In the end, um, I think it's still the traditional growth team, market, product, things like these. I wish it would be more. But um, on the other hand, I also can't blame them because in the end, the VC world is, is, is structured in a certain way. VCs have LPs. They're looking for growth. Um, and therefore, that's kind of you know, the business contract that they're in. And therefore, they also have to be focusing on what what their job is. Yeah. Do you have an ESG officer or anything similar at Kuno? Uh, not yet. Um, I mentioned we're a quite small company, quite yet, 60, slightly over 60 people. Um, I, we don't have somebody who kind of takes this role um, specifically. But I also think this is something that you live through your values, through you know, the leadership that you build. Um, yeah, and maybe in the future we'll we'll have somebody. If you would have somebody, where would you have that within your organization? Um, I think that would be a very central uh, position that would be reporting to me, the CEO. Okay, thanks a lot. Last three questions. Which one is the one podcast all founders should listen to? Yeah, that's a very tough question. Um, I can say that um the podcast uh by npr how i built this by guy raz has really kind of in inspired me before i became a founder and even now i feel like that the older episodes are better than the ones now but maybe it's also because i feel like the older episodes have all the big names especially when they are kind of smaller before the big success um but i if i think if i had to choose one it would probably be that one okay What are your two pieces of advice for early stage founders? Um, number one, you are not alone. I think, um, you know, as a founder or especially early stage founder, you go through a lot of struggles and 
sometimes you might not be an experienced founder. You might be a first-time founder. And then you sit there and you go like, am I the only dumb person in this universe who, you know, doesn't get this to work? And I think that's one thing that also helped me personally to be able to speak to other founders and share experiences because you will notice that you're not alone, that everyone or almost everyone had had to go through the same shit that you had to go through. And I think that's very important because that helps you kind of work through it and knowing, hey, that's, that's part of the game and you have to power through and there are solutions out there. So that's number one. Number two is, um, yeah, the struggle is real. Um, and also here that kind of goes into this, but it's embrace, embrace the struggle. Don't, what I often hear is, you know, you look left or right and you see all these success stories and you see all these large funding rounds and you just go like, gosh, like why, why am I the only clown who's like still not being able to do that? But I think what we forget often is that we don't see the people who are in the same position or also are struggling. And I think, you know. Oftentimes the startup or the, the founder life is, is being very romanticized by how we talk about this in the media. And yeah, so second advice would be, yeah, the struggle is real. Thanks a lot. Very last question and my personal growth hack. Who are the two other founders I should ask these questions and you could make an intro for me? Well, there are um, a lot of founders that came to my mind. If you ask for two, um, I have two amazing founders I could introduce you to and would love to hear their answers to this as well. So one is, uh, first person would be Jenny Saft from Oviabo. Um, she's building a fertility benefits company, um, B2B. Um, super important topic, I think, as well. And uh, Jen Fan from Passion Fruit. They are in the creator economy. They are building, I hope I get it right, kind of a CRM system for creators, and which I think is highly, highly interesting as well. And she has a really, really nice approach on how to think about building a company, who to hire, values and things like this as well. That sounds awesome. So I'm already saying thanks for, for the introductions. I'm very much looking forward to them. Thanks a lot, Sophie, for answering these 42 questions for your answers. I bet a lot of people can learn a lot from that. Um, talk to you soon and have a great day. Thank you. Thanks, you too. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. If you did, how about you subscribe on Spotify and or iTunes and give us a rating.